And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Mark Graney to the program today. Mark, thanks for stopping by. Good to see you again, Stephen. Mark is a New York Times bestselling author who worked with Tom Clancy and continued the Jack Ryan books after Mr. Clancy passed away. But on Book Talk, we know Mark best as the author of the Gray Man series. Mark first appeared on Book Talk with Gray Man in 2009, and we've talked about 10 others in the series over the years. But today we'll be talking about the 12th, which is called Burner, and it's published by Berkeley. Now, Mark, the star of The Gray Man is Court Gentry. He's a former CIA operative, and over the years, he's either been subject to a kill-on-sight order by the agency or been used as a sub-rosa asset. So where does he stand with the agency at the beginning of Burner? Yeah, they always either desperately want him dead or they desperately need him to help them. This one is the latter. He is doing contract work for them, essentially. They, they find him. He's been on the run from them. They find him, but not to kill him. They find him because they need him for a job or his handler, his former handler at the CAA, a woman named Suzanne Brewer, needs him for a job that gets the ball rolling. So his, this is a book of shifting alliances and allegiances through the entire book, but that, that's page one. It seems like that would mess with somebody's brain. How is court's mental health after all these years of shifting allegiances? I, you know, I like to, I like to delve into that some. Um, this book has some, some dark points as far as where the characters are emotionally. And I, and I think about, you know, it's a fun action, you know, romp over the top type of book. But at the same time, I, I want there to be like prices paid for some of their decisions psychologically. But generally, Court, although he's really good, is also the luckiest man on the face of the planet. Got to be. Through 12 books in, he's got to be. <laughs> at the beginning of the book, Court is working as a saboteur for a wealthy Ukrainian. What are his targets as the book opens up? He is sinking the mega yachts of Russian oligarchs around the world. After the war in Ukraine, this phase of the war in Ukraine, which began in February of last year, a lot of these oligarchs have been sanctioned and they're not allowed to move freely. And a lot of their water toys, their, their big yachts have been you know, grabbed. But at the same time, there's always Byzantine business ways that they can sort of hide the ownership of the yacht, offshore banks and whatnot. So court is working for this Ukrainian oligarch who is not a good guy himself, but Court doesn't have a problem working with bad guys if it's against another bad guy. As the book opens, he's working on sinking his third of these big mega yachts. The Ukrainian invasion by Russia in this book has taken place, but it is not exactly one-to-one -one with what's gone on there. How is it different in Burner than it is in our world? When I started writing this book, the war hadn't even started, but it was going to be a book about Russian foreign intelligence sort of owning people in the West to help them with their aims. And then the war started and I, I folded that in. And it was tough last spring and summer to try and prognosticate where we were going to be next February. And I did my best. And in the book, the Russians hold large swaths of eastern Ukraine. The West has supported Ukraine to a large degree. Reality is they've supported them more than I, would, than I expected. I think more than a lot of people expected. I think the West, we as the West have done a commendable job, not perfect, but commendable. And so that is portrayed in the book, but I probably could have gone further with that. But in the book, there is a potential peace treaty that could be signed that will kind of... Uh, at the expense of Ukrainian lives and territory, it's, it's a cynical treaty th that will benefit Russia and commercial interests in the West. And court is trying to stop that from happening. This projection that you made was based on essentially what happened in 2014 when the Western world really turned a blind eye to what happened 
in Donbass. Yes, and so many examples of turning a blind eye, you know, when the Malaysian airliner was shot down. And I mean, so many things that Putin has gotten away with, which is I think the reason he invaded is because he's like, you know, I'm going to get some sanctions slapped on me and Ukraine will fall in a few days, yada, yada. Didn't happen like that. For our benefit, it didn't happen like that. You know, the war still rages, sadly, but, you know, it's not going well for Russia. This oligarch that he's going after in the opening chapter, his name is Konstantin Pasternak. And I guess that's an homage to Boris Pasternak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Big Dr. Javago fan, are you? I'm not, but I do like the name. <laughs> <laughs> because there are similar names. Yeah. The head of Russia, the president, is named Peskov, mm-hmm. and that's the name of actually Vladimir Putin's press secretary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Dmitry Peskov? Is the yes, name Dmitry Peskov. And, and you know, it's a, it's a pretty common name. It's it's a big part of. I've written this in my 23rd book, and each book probably has 50 names in it, and. I will literally like look at the volleyball team of the Russian Federation and pick a first name and a last name. And it's like, it's, I'm, I'm always trying to come up with something I haven't used before that like the name Pasternak isn't necessarily what you would think of as a, as a Russian name. A bit later, we meet Alex Valesky, Alexander Valesky. He's a Ukrainian living in Switzerland at the time. And this man has sold part of his soul. Absolutely. He is into cryptocurrency and he works for a private Swiss bank that does nothing but money laundering, essentially. And he does nothing but money laundering. He is of Ukrainian heritage, but he's a resident of Zurich. And you learn pretty early on that he has a a reason to hate Russia, not just the war in general, but specifically he's lost family there. And even though he's lost family there over a year period, he's continuing to work and he knows he's laundering money for wealthy Russians and he doesn't feel good about what he's doing, but he doesn't really see himself as anything other than this until the book starts moving. In the real world, there's been a big decline in crypto over the past Mm -hmm. year, year and a half. Does the war in Russia have anything to do with that? I don't think it does. Fortunately for me, because I didn't anticipate the decline in crypto the way it's been. Fortunately for me, Crypto has very little to do with the story. It's just the relationship that he has with the Russians that he starts conspiring with against the Kremlin. He was sort of the the one that facilitated the movement of money without knowing who it was from and where it was going. And so the crypto wasn't a big part of it, thankfully, because if it was, I'd be in trouble right now because (laughs) that's what happens when you try and, you know, write as accurately as possible. I mean, the war could have been in a hundred different ways than it is right now. I think I represented it pretty good. Other than, as I said, I think I I underestimated what the West would do. And there's lots of bones to pick with what the West has done, could have done more to support or could be doing more. But overall, it's it's more than I I anticipated. Of all people, an even more corrupt Russian man by the name of of Igor Krupkin comes in and he provides Valesky a chance to get part of his soul back. Yes. So Krupkin has lost his son in the war. In the opening days of the war, in the opening months of the war, there were Russian military sort of frontline, top-tier officers in the war because they thought it was to be a quick mop-up situation. Now they're just sending waves and waves of prisoners and, and conscripts and kids from the Urals that don't even know where they are. But in the early stages of the war, the sons of some prominent Russians were there fighting because it was their moment of glory of military service. So this guy, Igor Krupkin, who is a sort of like a financial manager for the Kremlin, his son dies in Ukraine and he blames the Kremlin for it. So he has created a list of 
all the accounts and all the GRU, the FSB, the SVR, all the different Russian intelligence agencies. He knows where the bodies are buried financially, and he gets that to Valesky because he knows Valesky's Ukrainian, and he knows Valesky lost his family. And he says, look, I can't do this. They're going to catch me in a couple hours because they know what I did, but you're the one that's got to take this ball and run with it. Because Krupkin has a set of data that he has on an iPhone, but then Valesky has another set of data that makes it all make sense. Yes, you have to see both ends of this because money laundering is complicated as it is. You have to have records from the bank, and you have to have the actual originators, and you have to match that information up. And then there's another process you know, that happens later on in the book that has to be done to kind of like make sense of it all. Money laundering, in its way, is to be as boring and complicated as possible. It wants to make people's eyes glaze over. Yeah. So how do you deal with that in an action thriller book? You have fights on trains. You have fights on planes. <laughs> you have fights under the ocean. All sorts of action scenes. And there's a lot of tension to be had. I don't get into the minutia of money laundering because I, I had to do enough research on it to write about it. And you're exactly right, reading some of that stuff, you're like, okay, you, I was with you for a minute, but I've lost you to a degree. So I learned enough about it to put it in the, in the story as a bit of a MacGuffin. I mean, let's be honest, this trove of material is important to the story. He needs to get the contents of this iPhone and the files from his bank to a man who's been hounding him for years. Yeah, Valesky's not a good guy. He finds himself in a situation where he decides to do the right thing surprisingly even to him. And this guy, Ezra Altman, who is a New York forensic accountant who specializes in uncovering Russian money laundering, he's the one guy that if Bolesky gets all this material to, he can process it with the records that he has and information that he's obtained and be able to prove that this is Kremlin money or FSB money or SVR money that is going to this congressman or this television personality or whoever is on the receiving end. He's the one that can put it all together. But yes, Altman has been after Valesky for years because he's working for this private bank that does nothing but shill for the Russians. Krupkin, a Russian with a Ukrainian Valesky, Valesky going after the person investigating him. It's cats and dogs living together. Yeah, it is. And, and I kind of like the fact that, it, you know, it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And all these people are totally the antithesis of one another or don't like one another for different reasons. But there is this greater good that they all acknowledge and pursue. I've heard military people say two is one, one is none. Mm. So we have one copy of the iPhone with Valesky. There's a second copy of the iPhone, and that's going to someone named Edison John. Yeah, he's a lawyer in St. Lucia. I was thinking about Krupkin and how he would do this and the most efficient way for him to do this. And I thought about him physically taking a copy of it to one person, but not knowing, knowing if he's actually going to make it. So he has sort of like a second string person that could receive it that he trusts might do the right thing. So he sends it to this guy in St. Lucia. And quite frankly, from an author standpoint, it moves the action to the Caribbean where Port already is. I needed a reason the CIA came to him for this. That's a great place to do research. I went to St. Lucia, and it, it is a great place to do research. If I'm going to do research in Algeria, and I'm going to do research in St. Lucia. So how's your uh, scuba diving skills been coming along over the years? So there's diving in the beginning of this book. I love writing about diving because I love to dive. I like doing the diving on my research trips or on any trips. But I've told myself I'm putting like a moratorium on any more diving scenes for like three books because I don't want my series to turn into like Sea Hunt 2023 or something like that. Valesky has to download a ton of data from his own bank servers 
and that's going to set off alarms of its own. Yes, just like Igor Krupkin is working with a clock ticking, trying to get this information to Valesky. Once Valesky goes into his bank and takes this information, he knows that he's going to be found out by them, and that's going to put the target on him. So he's got to take that information, and then he thinks get himself to New York, but things get a lot more complicated really quick. Now, turning back to Court Gentry, he goes to his boat that's in the, the British Virgin Islands. It's named the Serenity because that's a very common name because if you don't know the series, one of Court Gentry's abilities is to be just a typical person who does not stick in your brain at all. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's a boring boat. If you own one of these boats, I apologize. But, I mean, it's, it's just just it's a white catch. Out. Yeah, it's not meant to stand out. And Serenity is the most common name in the West for a boat. So, yeah, he's just trying to just blend in. Court, you know, he's a professional. He does this to stay alive, not only to make a living, but also yeah. to stay alive. But he hasn't hidden himself nearly as well as he thought he has. Right. There's a point where the CIA finds him, and he's like... I don't understand how you found me. I have a camera on my masthead where I'm looking, I can see anybody that can see me. And Suzanne Brewer, the CIA officer, said, we have a constellation of satellites, so we were able to see you. They figured out pretty quickly that the guys sinking these boats had to be the gray man of these yachts. And so they basically started staking out <laughs> via satellites, you know, some of these other oligarchs' yachts. Lo and behold, one sinks and a boat sails off, and that's where they find him. So no balloons? I was making a joke that like next year's book's going to be about balloons, but it's just really hard to make them look scary on the cover of a, <laughs> of a book, so it might not happen. When he's found, it's by way of a beautiful woman is being brought in by another boat. He doesn't care how pretty she is. He has to determine her threat level. Yes, he's paranoid. And actually, there's a line in there where this woman, CIA officer, Angela Lacey, says, you're very paranoid. And he's, That's what all the people trying to kill me keep telling me. And, <laughs> and Lacey has been sent just to make contact with him and get him on the phone with Suzanne Brewer, who knows Court very well. Lacey doesn't know Court, doesn't know who he is, what he is, just assumes he's a CIA officer, perhaps a non-official cover officer who, you know, is in the operations arm, where she's in the operations arm, but she's been a covered officer. So she's worked in embassies and things like that. She thinks he's a slightly different breed from her, but has no idea that he's this infamous assassin and the world-renowned gray man. Yeah, she's not into the wet work. Yeah, she's, has, she has no interest in any of that. And as you mentioned Suzanne Brewer before, she seems to want in equal parts court gentry dead on a slab or making other people dead. Yeah, this book is a standalone, just like all my books are. You don't have to read any other books to pick this up and, and enjoy it and to know what's going on. But Suzanne Brewer's been in the last half dozen novels or so. I just like the idea of the hero's handler is the one who's trying to kill him. Every now and then she needs something from him, but she's unsuccessfully tried to kill him in, in a few books. It's like the coyote taking a break and saying, hey, Roadrunner, can you go <laughs> yeah, get something for me? Exactly. It's not, it's not any more highbrow than that at the end of the day. And there are a lot of familiar people if you have read the series, right. you're going to recognize a lot of people that yeah. pop up in the course of the story. So tell us who Sebastian Drexler is and why is he in this particular book? Yeah, there's a guy named Sebastian Drexler who is Swiss. He has worked as kind of a fixer for Swiss banks. And I'd used him in an earlier book called Agent in Place that I wrote a few years ago. He was down in Syria working for the regime down there. But he's been employed by Swiss banks. So here he is again, three books later, He's got a limp now from what happened to him, what Court did to him in the last book, but he's still alive and kicking. And Drexler is working with the Russians trying to capture Valesky, find this information that he has stolen and from his bank and the information that Krupkin has given him and resolve this all for the Russian government. 
And Russia has lent him the use of Unit 29155. Yeah, that is a GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. That is their foreign assassination squad, which is a real unit that has had differing levels of success on different missions. They've killed some people. They've just made some people sick <laughs> in other situations. But yeah, 29155 is kind of the worst assassins in Russian military intelligence. And they send one of their best hitters, Luka Rodenko, and he's been codenamed Matador by the Americans. And he's kind of similar to Suzanne Brewer in that he's a careerist. He yeah. wants to advance, and he wants a nice, cushy desk job. You write all these books, you want people to be different, and you want there to be something interesting about the character. And I was thinking, if I was a field officer in Russian military intelligence, what would my number one objective be right now? It would be not to go to Ukraine, not to die in this cause that's they're just stacking bodies down there. He's a major. If he gets promoted, he won't be in the field anymore. He'll be back at the aquarium, which is what they call the headquarters of the GRU. So he's desperately trying to do this one last mission on the ground and get out of the danger and back to Moscow. And much like Brewer, he doesn't have much of a conscience. Yeah, Rudinko. I did not write him with a lot of a conscience. <laughs> he's a bad guy. He's an assassin. There's not a nexus between the Russian government and the Russian mafia. They are one in the same. It is a kleptocratic system and there there is no difference so he's actually working for a mob boss but the mob boss is working for the kremlin so it, it really doesn't matter when you're talking about the powerful in russia they're they're all in league with the government and the government is all in league with the billionaires so when you grew up reading thriller books and were facing off against the soviet union and there's this strong ideology at play and now that we're dealing with dictators across the world and there's no ideology. Yeah. It's just pure graft is yeah. what's motivating them. Do you feel like, boy, I wish I could have dealt with more ideological ideas in this instead of just greed? I've never thought about that, but that's really a good way of looking about it. Yeah, it's, it's greed and it's retaining power because you know the minute you don't have power, you're dead. You know, there's a lot of that. And, you know, Russian ideology, which is essentially Putin's ideology, is that Ukraine doesn't exist as a country. And... The fact that there are Russian speakers in Ukraine that were living more or less democratically over the last 30 years, that's always been dangerous to him because he's an autocrat. And this subset of people who are sort of ethnic Russians and live in eastern Ukraine, they voted in three different presidents and, you know, who won the vote and took over. So he can't let that stand. He's a guy who's been president, who's been the ruler for 25 years, 24 years now, and he needs to get rid of Ukraine. It doesn't look good for him, and it doesn't look good for you know the, the people that are against Putin that see that. Before the book begins in earnest, you have a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know that we know they are lying. We know that they know that we know they know are lying. And still, they continue to lie. And that does seem to be a common theme between the Soviet era and the current ambitious to return to empire. Absolutely. There's actually a word for it in Russian. It starts with a V. Volodya. I can't remember it, but it means basically saying baloney for political reasons. You know, uh, just saying something that's manifestly not true. Everyone knows it's not true, but by asserting it, you are asserting your, your power by lying making, to people's face. Making people accept it. Yeah, making people accept it. And that's, that's, uh, there's an actual word for that in Russia, which is fascinating. Not all Russians are bad, we know. And in this instance, we have Zoya Zakharova, who has been a thorn in the side, romantic interest, opponent in all of 
these books. How is uh, Zoya doing during the beginning of this book? Zoya is not doing well during the beginning of this book. She's in a very, very dark place. She's a former Russian foreign intelligence officer, so she feels a lot of guilt about what's going on vis-a-vis Ukraine and vis-a-vis Russia, even though she's long gone from them and there's a kill order on her from the SVR, Russian foreign intelligence. So she is doing basically what Court is doing. She's working on a contract basis, finding jobs on the dark web and going and doing them. Court has more of a moral compass than she does. So while he is sinking yachts of evil people, she's out there stealing cars in Moldova, you know, like truckloads of cars and things. But she has a problem with alcohol. She has a problem with drugs. And she has just a serious problem with depression. And she misses Court. He ran out on her a couple books you know, earlier because... He felt he was protecting her by getting away from her because of the danger he was in. She doesn't see it that way. So she's in a really dark place when this happens. And then she's asked to go and take hold of Alex Valesky and get him away. She sees this as her, her chance to sort of like revive herself and, uh, you know, get out of her stupor. Because it may be that she's self-medicating because maybe she doesn't have that bit of conscience that Rodinko doesn't have. Yeah, exactly. She's trying to put a salve on uh, all the pain that's going on in her. For people who may have not read your books, they had an opportunity to experience court gentry on, I guess, however big of a screen you have in your house. (laughs) The Netflix movie came out last year, The Gray Man. I remember over the years, there's people have optioned your book for to have a, a screenplay made from it, and it's just been kind of in what they call turnaround forever yeah. and ever. Yeah. What was it like finally seeing your characters on the, on a screen? Yeah, we've been talking about this for uh, 12 or 13 years, you and I. <laughs> I never thought it was going to happen. You know, we did get close a couple of times over, over the years. I never thought there would be a day when I'm, like, on Hollywood Boulevard signing autographs and then going in to see the premiere with the actors. And, and that happened last July. So it was, it was magnificent. I really enjoyed the movie. It's different from the book. The books are a lot grittier. I have 100,000 words to play with or more. I think Burner's probably 160,000 words. And Court's not that handsome. Yeah, Court's been not that handsome. I, he's the guy you don't notice. And Ryan Gosling is the guy you notice. But I, I've had fans say, you need to get an unknown person to play him. I'm like, that's not really how Hollywood works. This is a $200 million film. They're going to get somebody that they think is is bankable. But yeah, no, it's been a great experience for me. They're doing another film, and I'm happy about that. It's not exactly like the book, so if you saw the movie and enjoyed it, the book is a completely different experience. Now, the second film, is that going to be based on a particular book in the series? It is, and I don't think I can say which one it is just yet. But they're they're still in the writing the screenplay, so I'm not sure, sure how close or how far it'll be from a particular book. Were you allowed to visit the set while they were filming? I didn't. Uh, there was all the COVID protocols going on at the time. And they said, you know, they'd like to have me out for the next one. I mean, they sent me the script and I'm friendly with the directors. We'd text back and forth. But I would see things on Twitter. I would see Ryan Gosling dressed as Court Gentry on Twitter just like anybody else would. No advanced knowledge. And so when your wife and your stepkids see your effort on the screen, did, do you think that made a difference to them? Yeah, my kids have only seen it once, and that's because I took them to the theater. You know, it, it hasn't changed things around the house. It's not something we talk about. It doesn't get me out of taking the garbage out or anything like that. Um, but I, th- I do think that, you know, they, they like it. I, I want my kids to see that, you know, hard work can pay off and things that you dream about can actually happen. I, it took me 20 years to get published. You know, I've been coming on with you since my first book, since before my first book came out. It was one of the, I think the first interview, person-to-person interview I ever did. 
you know, but that was 20 years after I started saying, hey, I'd like to be a writer. So, you know, I, I want to show them that this hard work can pay off. Mark, a few years ago, you had a book come out that you had written with now retired Lieutenant Marine Colonel Hunter Ripper Rollins IV called Red Metal. And it was about a Russian invasion of Europe that was done under disguise. Now seeing how the invasion of Ukraine has happened, do you think you overestimated what the Russian military were capable of? Two-part answer, yes, I did overestimate it. And also, I don't think the book would have been published if we'd written it the way that it was. I mean, honestly, you know, Russia has a T-14 Armada tank, which is their newest, latest, and greatest tank. It never been tested in combat, so you don't really know. One of them even stalled out on a May Day parade, you know, going, going through Red Square. So it didn't look good for them, but the purported capabilities were really good. And, you know, we did research into that. So we had T-14 Armada tanks. I think there's been one that has appeared in Ukraine, and I think it, it was destroyed. They're using T-72s and I think even some T-60s, which yeah. have been around for 60-something years now. And then T-80s and T-90s. Absolutely overestimated them, but for a novel... You can't have a weak villain. And, uh, you know, obviously Russia has, has the bodies to keep throwing at it. And I've read some, somebody say, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. Even though the Russians don't have the quality, there's, there's a lot of them. As long as they have artillery shells and, and bodies, it's going to be bad. Rip, as his yeah. friends call him, has written several novels of his own. Yeah. But he's been working very diligently trying to get equipment and supplies to the fighters in Ukraine. Yeah. Has that put a crimp in y'all putting out a, a second book? Absolutely, it has. But I, I mean, I'm so proud of him. It's, it's one of those things. I, I'm like, you do your thing. He's a guy that spent 23 years in the military, studied going nose to nose with Russia all that time, even though he was involved in all these deployments in the Middle East. And then he retires. And then a year later, Russia brutally attacked and unjustly attacks a nation of 50 million people. And he immediately went over there. And his wife is a surgeon, used to be a, a, a Navy surgeon. They went over there and started supporting him. Now he supports a battalion of foreign troops that are working for the Ukrainians. And it's French and American and Canadian. And just It's just a, a mishmash. I donate to them. And he's bringing them equipment, everything from you know binoculars to trucks. And he's getting money for this from various sources around the world. And I'm really proud of them. But yeah, there is a sequel to Red Metal that will be written at some point, and it, it won't involve Russia. It will probably involve China. And so there'll be some point where Rip and I are back out on the road, you know, over in Asia this time, I guess, um, working on the next book. So what's the name of this organization of people listening at home? And it's called ripleysheroes.org is the name of the website that you can donate to. And you can see where that, you know, and I donate to them. And, you know, I got some optics you know, some rifle scopes sent and trailers, like er everything, winter coats and all these sorts of things. And they're, they're working really hard. And the battalion of foreigners isn't just in Ukraine. They are in eastern Ukraine. They are in combat and they are taking losses. Have you written book number 13 in the Great Man series yet? I am 40,000 words into it. It's like going to be 150,000 word novel. So I've got a long way to go. It's due this summer because I have another book to write later this year. Uh, do you have a title for it? No. This is the longest I've gone without having a title. I usually have a title before I start, and I don't have an approved title for this. I might call it The Chaos Agent, but I could be here next year with a different book, and it's the same story. Right now it's called The Chaos Agent, but no one, you know, that's not solid yet. And can you give us a little bit about the other book that you're supposed to write this year? Yeah, the other book I'm supposed to write is the second in my Josh Duffy series. Yeah, the first book, Armored, came out last year. 
and it's about a civilian military contractor and his former army officer wife and their kids. That'll be due before the end of the year, and that should be out next summer, 2024. And that one's got some Hollywood interest too, doesn't it? Sony picked that up. I think right now they're looking at turning it into a series, like an eight-hour series. I've had some talks with the script writer and one of the producers about that. You know, it's still an incredible long shot. Even though I've had something get made, that might help me a little bit, but now it's like a two-in-a-million shot <laughs> instead of one-in-a-million. And I, I guess I'm sitting pretty, but you never know if it's going to happen. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for continuing to come on Book Talk year after year. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. It's my pleasure, Stephen. Mark Graney is the author of Burner, which is published by Berkeley, the 12th novel in the Gray Man series. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.